being able to walk through this church, uh, the, the church of Pergamum in Revelation chapter 2. And I want to talk to you about this, this Pergamum mentality that, that Jesus calls to our attention in this letter to the church of Pergamum. But I want you to realize, I want you to take notice that, that not only is, is this letter, uh, does it apply to the church of Pergamum then, but this is a real church with real people in a real place. And so it, if it applies to them, it has to apply to us today. It has to apply to the church today. And so I want to take this idea of, of this Pergamum mentality and, and unfold this, unpack this from Scripture and walk through this with you this morning. But before we read Scripture, I want to pray with us and then we'll jump into this morning's study. Okay, God, we thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together as a family and study your word. God, there are other things that could be going on. There are other things that our minds could give our attention to. But right now, Father, I pray that you would clear our hearts, you would clear our minds, that you would fill us with your spirit. And God, you would really help us hone in on what you would have us to take away from this passage of Scripture. God, what would you have us, First Baptist Church of Westminster, learn from the Church of Pergamum? God, there's no doubt there's something there. And to one person, it may mean one thing. And to another, it may mean something completely different. But God, we know this, that your word is truth. And that in your word, there's no error. And so God, I pray that as we study your word this morning, that you would show us as individuals and as a corporate body of believers, exactly what you would have us to learn and to know about your word this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look at chapter 2, starting in verse 12, to the church of Pergamum. Again, as we've noted in the past, this is penned by John on the island of Patmos, but given to him from... Jesus himself. And so he writes this letter to the church of Pergamum, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true in my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not in not even in the days of Antipas. My faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Verse 17, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. You may be seated. So we're walking through these seven letters to the seven churches. And, and right now, to this morning, we're going to be walking through the third letter. And so I want to briefly just carry us back a couple of weeks ago to the church of Ephesus. And we know in reading that and studying the church of Ephesus, we know where it's at and its location. It was the closest of the seven churches to the island of Patmos. And if you look on a map, you've got Ephesus and it basically does a triangle or an upside down V. You've got Ephesus, Smyrna, and then Pergamum. And then it begins to descend down to the other four churches. And so you've got the church of Ephesus that John is writing this letter to that Jesus has come in and given his evaluation of the church. And the church on the outside to the world looked great. Looked like they had it all together, had everything going on that you could possibly have going on. And Jesus commended them for that, but then he called them out because they had left or walked away, forgotten their first love. And that's a reminder to you and I as individuals, that's a reminder to the church that we can't do anything separate from God. If we do, it means absolutely nothing and will go absolutely nowhere. And then you have the second church, the church of Smyrna. And this was the church that on the outside didn't look all that great. They were probably struggling for the most part. They were persecuted. They were tried. They were outcast. They were in bondage. They were enslaved. So many different types of idol worships were going on there. And yet, Jesus tells them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, I'm fighting for you. Keep fighting the good fight. Keep doing what you're doing. And their faith was a true faith in the church. Then you have the church of Pergamum, which we're going to look at this morning. And this is the church that if I had to sum it up in one word, this is the church engaged in compromise. That's where we're going to draw this idea of the Pergamum mentality from. This whole thought of a church... Being surrounded by compromise. And because they were being surrounded by such compromise, it was beginning to creep into the church itself. They were on the verge, if they weren't careful, of becoming a Christian church who believed that they could maintain some type of Christianity and yet still be married to the world. And Jesus is telling them, you better be careful. You better be careful. We can all sit here and talk all day long and share stories back and forth of times where we've compromised. And where does compromise get us? Nowhere. 
we're going to see that if, if we had, a, had to categorize this church, you've got the church of Ephesus who thought they were bigger than they actually were. And in better shape than they actually were. You've got the church of Smyrna who was struggling. They were the struggling church. You've got the church of Pergamum who was the stubborn church. And in fact, we see where Jesus is talking in relation to himself. He references himself as the double-edged sword. Sharper than any double-edged sword. If you go back into Revelation chapter 1, you'll see in John's vision of Jesus, Jesus is described as that. Out of his mouth coming a sword sharper than any two-edged sword. That is a sign of Jesus' judgment. You see, we have to be careful as Christians to understand and know that there are consequences that come with our behavior. We teach our children that, right? We're taught that as citizens. We're taught that as employees or employers. That with bad decisions come consequences. And I would hate to know that we're a church that just thinks that Jesus or God is sitting on His throne like Santa Claus. And everything is good. Everything is grand. Everything is great. And He is a God of grace. He is a God of mercy. But He's also a just God. And hates sin. And calls the church out for it. So we come to this place. We see in verse 1 that this letter is written to the church of Pergamum or Pergamus. Both are correct. But we have this church of Pergamum. I found this out. It's pretty neat. How did Pergamum get their name? Well, there's this, this paper-like material that comes from an animal's skin, wool. It's called parchment. It's a type of paper that was used during this time to write on. And, and apparently, this is where that was founded. This is where that began, this, this type of writing material, this paper, this, this animal skin was called parchment. And it came from this place. And so from there, we have to know or believe or think that that's where Pergamum got their name. We see as it goes on in verse 12... Jesus talking, these are the words of Him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Why is Jesus addressing this church in this way? Well, because of this place. This place for many years was considered the capital of Asia Minor. It was the capital city of Asia Minor. But in that time, remember we talked about Domitian, who was the ruler and reigner of that time, the Caesar of that time. And he was a, a, a dictator, a murderous dictator is what one commentary said. Vicious man who despised Christians and, and literally would have Christians beheaded or killed, murdered for their faith, for not bowing down and serving Caesar. And so this was going on during that same rule and reign. These same things were going on and Christians were being persecuted here in Pergamum. 
And not only were the, 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 the Caesar worship so important to the people there, the, the pagan worship was even worse. There were so many different idols and pagan types of worship there that the Christians were, were not only being persecuted because of their faith, but their jobs, their, their economic status was deteriorating because of it. This place was a horrible place for a Christian to live. It was a bad place for a Christian to live just simply because of the persecution. If you proclaim to be a Christian, your citizenship would be taken away. Not only your citizenship, but your life was in danger. And this is the place where the church of Christ is sitting. Then we go on down to verse 13 and we see the people. It says in verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. That is a powerful, powerful statement when you think about it. If you go back and you look at the church of Smyrna, Jesus says somewhat of the same thing. He says that I know that, that Satan is there. He says, but there is a synagogue of Satan in Smyrna. In Pergamum, he says that Satan's operation, his throne is there. You see, we tend to have this idea as Christians that Satan is here in hell. But in fact, Satan is here on earth running, going to and from, operating from here. And he tells the people of Pergamum, Satan's throne is right here in your backyard. It's right here. Satan had set up his enterprise in Pergamum and this little church was feeling the heat. This little church was feeling the heat. I said this the other week and I put it back in my notes this morning. True faith is not fragile. Only false faith is. And this little church was standing against it. And here's what Jesus says to him. He says, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. You know, Sunday when, when we were out in Atlanta, my dad invited one of his friends. He's a, he was a, he's a pastor in Virginia. And he told me, he said, Matt, can you believe two months ago uh, th- this guy was pastoring a church, a friend of his was pastoring a church in, in Western Virginia. And a couple came, uh, a gay couple came to him and wanted him to perform their wedding. Wanted this pastor to marry them. And this pastor said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. And these two men went and pressed charges against this local pastor. So much so they went to government And the government has come in and they have fined this church $15,000 and they've taken the rights away of this pastor from an income tax standpoint. He can no longer claim himself and receive housing allowance or anything like that that ordained ministers can receive. And I went, you've got to be kidding me. And he said, no. 
It's happening in Virginia right now. I couldn't believe it. That led me to this question as I thought about this idea of this Pergamum mentality of compromising. This church stood up. This pastor stood up for what he believed in. And yet he's still persecuted for it. And I believe that this church is going to pay this fine and and this pastor is going to continue to preach the gospel and God's going to take care of it. But church, what are we doing to make sure we don't fall into this Pergamum mentality? That we don't allow the world to creep into the operations of this church. Because it's coming. Are we going to be a church that stands up and says, you know what? No, it's not happening. Or are we going to be a church that says, you know what, if government says so, and if we're going to be thrown into jail, or if we're going to get our tax exemption status thrown out, then we better do what the government says we're going, we, we better do. Hey, it's coming. You better get ready. You better get ready. Because it's coming. You see, this church was already facing some of these same issues thousands of years ago. And Jesus tells them, you remain true in my name. Even to the point that you watched one of my faithful witnesses, Antipas, die. If you want to go Google that or study that, it's pretty horrendous the way he was killed. History says that in that time, they went and they, they built a brass bull. Hollowed brass bull. They set fire to it. And they threw Antipas in it. And he was burned to death in this brass bull. All because he would not compromise his faith to worship Caesar. I read this in in one of our devotional books the other day, our Stand Firm book. I think it was two weeks ago. Martin Luther said this. He said, is your faith so strong that you're willing to die a thousand deaths for its sake? Wow. Listen, I hope I'm not just being tongue in cheek up here. This is real. Faith is real. The things that you and I face every single day, that's real. Is our faith strong enough to endure it? Is our faith so strong that we're willing to die for it? Martin Luther, Martin Luther actually says to die a thousand deaths for its sake. Are you a man or a woman that would rather sacrifice your life than to compromise? Listen, let's be honest. Compromise is easy. It's easy. Sometimes it's just so much easier to go with the flow than to stand up and say something. Right? So much easier. What are we doing? What are we doing as a church? What are we doing as individuals to make sure that we're not taking on this Pergamum mentality and compromising? You know, it's sad. I thought with football yesterday and, you know, it's football season. Fall's here, right? 
Cooler weather is supposed to be here. Hopefully it's coming soon. Some would sacrifice more for their hobby or their team than they would for Christ. You know, we had a great time last Sunday, but it was it was so eye opening. There was one guy literally for 300 laps. Every time his favorite driver came by, he stood up and he would holler at him. I couldn't even hear myself think. Do you really think that driver is hearing you when you stand up and yell at him? <clears throat> but I thought, man, the passion that guy had, I mean, and he could have been four sheets to the wind. I have no idea. I think you'd have to be to do something like that. But he did. We can't compromise. You give them a little, they're going to take a lot. I think that goes true for our own personal lives. That goes true for this church. We begin to compromise on some of these things. We're going to see a lot more take place. We've got to stand our ground. Here's the problem. Jesus says in verse 14, He says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Here's the concern. Here's the problem that Jesus has with the church. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. We don't have a whole lot of time to go into Balaam and Balak. You can go to Numbers chapter 22 and read three or four chapters there. And that will give you the background on who Balaam and Balak are. Balak was a king of Moab at that time. And Balaam was pretty much, if you want to really sum her up to who she was, she was a prophet for hire. She was a prostitute prophet. And she asked, uh, Balak wanted the Israelites wiped out. He wanted them wiped out, taken care of, done away with. And so he asked Balaam to, to curse the nation of Israel. And she attempted several times and failed. God stopped that from happening. And so every time it failed, Balak would just become more furious. And so he came up with another plan. If he couldn't curse them, he was going to do it some way or another. And so he enticed Balaam or asked Balaam, paid Balaam to go and entice the Israelite men. And so he had women move in, the Moabite women move in with the Israelite men. And you know what happens. Not only were they seduced, they sucked them into intermarriage. And once they were intermarried, they fell into the idolatrous worship of the Moabite people. Compromise. You know, David compromised when Bathsheba and that whole situation happened. He compromised and it began to snowball and it got out of control quickly. 
Folks, if you and I individually, if we as a church, if we begin to compromise, we're going to be in trouble. And it's going to snowball and it's going to get out of control before we can ever do anything about it. And instead of being a reactive church, I believe we need to be a proactive church. Instead of being a reactive person, we need to be proactive people. Got to have a vision. Got to have a plan. And even though Jesus commends the church of Pergamum and saying you're holding to the faith, you're staying strong. You even witnessed one of my men, one of my precious people could have been the pastor, uh, a layman of the church was killed in my name's sake. And you held to the faith. You haven't compromised. But. The practices. Of what went on with the nation of Israel years ago. Is still taking place in your church. And you're allowing it. He goes on to say in talking about the Nicolaitans. He says, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. If you go back in Acts, you can read that that, that this guy, Nathan, was a man of a church. He was a deacon or an elder of a church. But he practiced this lifestyle. Basically, in layman's terms today, you pretty much live how you want to live throughout the week. And you come into the church and you act like a saint. His belief was, I'm saved by grace. And I have freedom in that to live however I want because I know that I'm saved. Boy, how many people do we know that are like that? That they firmly believe that just simply because their name is written in the Lamb's book of life, that they can live however they want until they die. Hey, newsflash, that's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. I don't believe that you can accept Christ and you can go back into a pagan lifestyle and live how you want, do what you want, however you want, whenever you want, and proclaim to be a Christian. I don't believe it works that way. Now, are we sinners? Yes. Are we going to sin? Yes. But as a Christian, there should always be that desire, that drive daily to live for Christ. And that when we do fail, when we do fall, that we fall on our face and we repent and we ask for forgiveness. But there were men and women in the church in Pergamum who believed otherwise. They were pretend Christians. They were make-believe Christians. They thought they could live however they wanted and still be associated with Christ. And that's just not right. I think the bigger issue was Jesus saw this. He called them out for it. And the reason why He called them out for it is they were doing nothing about it. They noticed it. They saw it. And yet they did nothing about it. Listen, I told our students Wednesday night. 
I believe that, that when you become a Christian, when you are saved by the grace of God and you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, He gives you the Holy Spirit. And I believe in through giving you the Holy Spirit, He gives you a sense of confidence that you've never had before. I didn't say arrogance. I didn't say cockiness. I said confidence. And there's a difference. He gives you the confidence to stand up for what you know is right. And what you believe in. And, and there should never be a moment in our lives when we're challenged by something that we don't believe that we don't stand up and say something about it. Listen, Christians are being called cowards today. Christians are being called hypocrites today. Christians are called soft today. Because when we're challenged on an issue, we do nothing about it. But step back and let things roll the way they want to roll. Instead of taking a stand on God's Word and saying, you know what, this is what God's Word says, this is what I believe, and this is where I'm going to stand. I told our students Wednesday night, don't you dare go home and tell Mom and Daddy, I told you fighting is okay. I'm not condoning fighting. Alright? You hear me? But you better believe I'm going to stand up for what I believe in. I don't care where it's at. I don't care who it's with. I'm going to stand up for what I believe in. I had a little... I shared Wednesday night. I had a little uh, interesting uh, conversation with a gentleman at the race on Sunday. He was four sheets to the wind. I knew he was because the cooler was sitting right behind me. And every time he finished one off, he thought it would be neat to just take it, put it on the ground, and crush it with his foot. And so we're about, you know, 250 laps into the race, and I'm sitting there, and um, he crushes one of his cans. And it gets on me. gets on my shirt, and on Graham's bag, Graham's bag sitting beside me. Oh, I was furious. I was furious. So I just stood up, turned around. I said, "Uh, buddy, you just crushed that can and beer got on my shirt and on my son's bag. And he had a friend sitting beside him and he took his earplugs out and he said, what's the problem? I told him, I said, he just crushed a can and it got on me and it got on my bag and I don't appreciate it. That's disrespectful. And he went to jabbering and jammering about something, about it being a race and let's have fun and all this stuff. And I said, you know what? I don't care. I was shaking. I was so mad. My mom just reached over and she kind of grabbed my arm. And I turned around and I sat down. The guy got up and he left. And my mom asked me after, she said, Mac, why in the world did you do that? My mom's not a confrontational person at all. <clears throat> at all. And she said, why in the world did you do that? And I said, well, I said, Mama, it's this way. I said, I get it. I know it was just alcohol. I'm fine with that. I said, but at some point, you've got to respect the people around you. And, and I thought, you know, Graham's sitting right beside me at five years old. And he saw it happen. And his daddy didn't do anything about it. 
That's not right. Now, was I going to fight the guy? No. He's 58 years old. Come on, man. Really? And the only reason why I know that is because I heard him tell somebody after our conversation, he said he was 58 years old. I don't know why he said that, but he did. I guess he wanted me to hear how old he was. You're 58, I'm 30. I think I'm good. But my point is, how many times in our lives do things like that happen or similar things like that happen and we, we say absolutely nothing? We just let the world and the people in this world run over us and we say absolutely nothing about it. it happens all the time. It's time for the church to take a stand. It's time for the people of God to take a stand and say, you know what? This is what I believe. These are my convictions. And this is where I stand. If I make you mad, I make you mad. If I upset you, I upset you. But you know what? Your issue is not with me. It's with God. Because that's what His Word says. Here's the promise that Jesus gives them in verse 17. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some hidden manna. I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Listen, that's the promise that we have in Jesus. That hidden manna, that's the eternal life, that's the eternal food. That's the eternal blessing that we get from knowing who Jesus is and accepting His gift of salvation. That white stone, listen, at that time, they didn't have tickets to get into games or plays or events, you had stones. And in court, if you were ever sent to court or in court to be judged for something, to be convicted of a crime that you had committed, the judge had a white stone and a black stone. And the white stone meant if you were given the white stone that you were freed from that conviction. The black stone meant you were convicted of that conviction. And Jesus says here that we're to be given a white stone with a new name on it. That's the promise that we have from Jesus. Listen, the world's not going to change, folks. Satan is alive. He's working. He's pursuing. And he's not going to stop until Jesus comes. But listen, we can't stop until Jesus comes. What's your motivation? What's your motivation? Things motivate you. I know they do. There are certain things in your life that motivate you. I had a coach the other day. I was walking down the hall and she said, Mac, you look different. I said, okay. What do you mean I look different? She said, you've lost weight. And I said, whoa. Wait a minute. I hope not. She said, but what are you doing? I said, well, I go to the gym. I work out. I said, there's a reason for that. My motivation for that is type 2 diabetes and obesity in my family. That's motivation for me. What's motivating you today? To make sure that you and I and our church does not fall into this Pergamum mentality of compromise. 
that even in a city, in a world that is corrupt, pursuing the things not of God, what are we doing to make sure that we're not compromising our faith just to fit in? Listen, in my book, this is the only thing that is relevant. You understand me? This is the only thing that is relevant. Relevant. If it doesn't come from here, if it has nothing to do with this, it's not relevant. We can't be a people of compromise. Listen, the promise of God is His Son Jesus. His death, His burial, His resurrection. That's the hope that we have. And I invite any of you, someone Anybody, if you've never invited Jesus into your heart, I'm telling you what, this promise that He gave the church of Pergamum applies to you. That heavenly manna, that white stone, and it can never be taken away. It's the greatest gift you and I can ever receive. Let's pray together. God, we thank You so much for today. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this time. God, I just pray during this invitation time, God, that we would rest our hearts, we would rest our minds, and God, we would allow You to speak to us. Father, maybe we are struggling with compromise. Maybe there's someone here who has never accepted Christ. Maybe there's someone here who God just has an incredible burden on their heart for someone they love and know is lost. God, I pray that You would lead them to Your altar this morning. And that, God, You would speak to them. You would give them the incredible peace and joy that only You can give them. So, God, we give You this time and ask Your blessings over it in Christ's name. Amen.